check it. There it is, yes. No ambiguity there. All right, well, um, well, welcome. Today we begin a new series in the book of Acts called God's Distinct People. God's Distinct People. This series will last through the summer, and we will track through the first nine chapters in the book of Acts before we begin a new series in the fall. Um, thank you, Jill, for the cover art. You can see the cover art um, on the cover of your programs. It's really creative, and I don't want to, um, you know, give you the definitive interpretation of <laughs> art. No, no such thing exists. But you'll see that, um, that you can see the Roman Empire uh, in, in this artwork. You can also see a sense of fanning out and going out um, in this artwork. Um, and also uh, what, does, uh, what is, looks somewhat like the feathers of a dove um, and the, the, the signs, just kind of the imprint of the Holy Spirit, which is pictured as a dove in, in, in the scriptures. Um, perhaps there will be things that you see in this cover art that I don't. Please tell me what you see. Um, so God's distinct people. Um, let me tell you why I'm excited about this series. First of all, I love a good story. Um, and when we read Acts, we get to observe the impact of, you have the resurrection of Jesus, and then you have the first century Roman Empire. That's a really interesting story to see how those two things collide. And we're going to get to watch. We're going to get to see what happens when you have the power of the resurrected Jesus working through a marginalized community impacting the Roman Empire, what, what happens when those two things collide? Um, wherever you're at on the spectrum of faith, I really hope that you'll enjoy learning about this history. It's a good story, and, um, and I hope you'll stick around for it. Secondly, I love to hear stories about God. I really love to hear about ways that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, has an encounter with, with a human being or a whole group of human beings. It's always encouraging. And there's a lot of stories like that in Acts. And I've just personally been reading Acts myself and been personally encouraged with these stories. And um, it's great to see and hear about God changing entire families and ent entire cities and individuals, in some cases through dramatic ways, very unexpected. I love... I love um, to hear stories about God. Um, third, I, I want Emmanuel, I want our church to live her story with God. I'm, I'm keenly interested for, for us as a community to live the story that we've been given as a church. Um, and I think that Acts can help shape our imaginations so that we can begin to look for ways that the Lord might work in our own day, even though, yes, it will be different, it will be unique, um, but we can, we can, our imaginations can be shaped and, and be prepared for the ways that God is moving in Chicago right now and the ways that we can join him in that. Um, so so why, why are we calling it God's distinct people? Um, in Acts, you can see that when God encounters a group of people, you can like tell, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can, the, the, the impact of God is, is unique and distinct uh, upon an individual or upon a whole group of people. Um, sometimes we, we actually, we want to not be distinct. It's actually nice to not stick out, to not be distinct. It's more comfortable. 
um, we have a sense of maybe perhaps just remaining anonymous. And um, I feel that relief when I'm anonymous. Sometimes where I, when I wear this collar around outside of church, I feel really conspicuous. And things get more interesting. They do. Um, I meet people I would have never met before. Um, I have conversations and encounters and endure some stares that, I, that otherwise I wouldn't have. Um, but there's a three-dimensional quality when God's people take on God's character. So forget the collar. Think about what happens in your soul and in your family and in your life and among your friendships when you begin to live God's story. It's distinct. It's unique. It stands out. And when God does it, it's beautiful. There's no reason for us to be distinct in a, in a, in a bad way, to, to, um, to be obnoxious, to be rude. None of us want to do that. Um, but when God makes us stand out in a good way, it's what Jesus calls it salty. It makes you thirsty for more of God. It's, it makes us brighter and, and, and gives hope to the world, as we talked about last week. Um, uh, people who have been made distinct by God are the ones God uses to love their cities to life. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be made distinct by God. Um, to be unique and beautiful and salty in a way that, uh, the way that is unique to, to what the Lord can do in our community. So let me list off some of the qualities that we'll observe in the book of Acts that were true of God's people. Commissioned. God's people were commissioned. We'll talk about that today. Empowered. Delivered, delivered from things that were, that were um, holding them hostage or prisoners. United, God's people are united. Um, God's people are bold. They're accountable. They're unrelenting and yet relaxed. They're fed. They're bold. They're, um, uh, they're fruitful. They're surrendered. And they multiply. They're multiplying. And I'm praying that all of these qualities, as we'll unpack them, will, will become ours, that we'll receive them as our birthright. And I want to encourage you to, like, please open up the book of Acts on your own and just begin to read it this summer. Just savor it and, and read through it and let it capture your imagination. And, and as you do, pray for the Lord to make us distinct. So I'm excited about this series because, number one, I love a good story. Number two, I love good stories about God. Number three, I want us to live our story as a community. And finally, I'm excited to raise up some emerging preachers in our church and in our diocese. Um, and about half the sermons this summer from the book of Acts will be from, um, from people, not me. Um, so we'll, have, um, we'll, we'll get to hear from next week from Trevor McMacken, who's planting a church in our uh, network, in our diocese. Um, he's planting a church in Aurora, and he's going to come and preach from Acts 2. Um, we'll hear from Aaron Sanga eventually, and Susan Radicke eventually, and Joel Radicke eventually, and we'll hear from Stephen Gautier eventually, and some other uh, favorites. So I'm excited about that, and, um, and I know that the Lord will use them to build up our congregation. But we have a story to live. We have a story to live as the people of God. Um, we have a noble calling upon us as God's people. But before we can live that collective story, we have to come to terms with what our individual stories are, the stories that we're telling ourselves in our heads as we go through life. Um, we are constantly encouraged from the, from, from, from the time we were children all the way up till now, constantly encouraged to live our own individual, unique, beautiful story. 
We're encouraged to live individual stories. And we have to come to grips with that and be honest about that if we are then to move and graduate to living a collective story, a common story, a family story. Um, I really enjoyed a book uh, that I've mentioned to some of you called The Promise of Despair, um, The Way of the Cross as the Way of the Church. This is written by a theologian named Andrew Root. And in it, he discusses that there's incredible pressure put on the individual to live an amazing story. In the modern era, post-enlightenment era, we have so many choices. We're born with lots and lots of choices. We're given special skills, special coaching, special opportunities. But what we don't have, oftentimes, is a sense of community. We're born with lots of choices, but we're not born with a lot of community. And we're not born with a lot of sense of, of history, where we come from. And, um, and so community has died and meaning has died, but we have all these choices and then we have this mandate to live an amazing life, to go out there and change the world as an individual, to find all the meaning that you can in the future, but you have no meaning in the past. Such pressure is put on the individual to live out a, a unique and beautiful story. It's a lot like a sandcastle competition. I was thinking about this. It's so much like a sandcastle competition. Hey, we're going to give you the best tools and the best training to build the most amazing sandcastle that you can build. And then we're going to evaluate all of them, and you might just get a huge pat on the back and medal and five trophies for your amazing sandcastle that you build all by yourself. But what's going to happen after you die and after I die? Do you remember any of it? Do you even know your great-grandfather's name? Do, do you even know your grandfather's name? People are going to forget us. You have an amazing story to live, but it lasts ah, a few years. And then the wave comes and washes it away, erodes it, wave after wave. You're going to be gone. I'm going to be gone. Let's make the most of it. As I heard at a gradu uh, high school graduation ceremony, the ending line was, let's live the most meaningful lives until the sun burns out. It's my best paraphrase of, of, of what this graduating senior said. Ah, wow. Make the most meaning that you can. Build the best sandcastle that you can. So we live temporary, individual lives, individual stories in our context. This is a recipe for anxiety. I mean, this is so much pressure, so little meaning, so little moorings. This is a recipe for anxiety, individual anxiety, which becomes collective anxiety. So I want to talk about how the book of Acts speaks to this anxiety and gives us a calling. I'm going to talk about two temptations that we have before us um, as a people. Two temptations, things that, lesser stories that we're tempted to take upon ourselves. And I'm going to talk about the calling that we have as the people of God. Let's look at Acts 1. In the first book, this is verse 1 of Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this is Luke writing the book of Acts. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he, he wrote a two-part series. Part 1 was the Gospel of Luke, Part two was called the Acts, 
Some people call it the Acts of the Apostles. It's probably better called the Acts of God or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of Jesus. Um, Theophilus was likely some guy who was aware of Jesus, aware of Christianity, but he was a skeptic. And Luke is writing to him to help him understand the heart of the Christian movement so that Theophilus, as potentially a member of the ruling society in, in the Roman Empire, would, would regard Christianity as more favorable. Less, it's not so much uh, a good idea to persecute these Christians. Uh, listen to them, listen to the story and the claims of Jesus, and watch actually the good that they're doing in the major urban centers of the Roman Empire. Um, part one was Jesus' activity. It says all that Jesus began to do and teach in part one. That was the Gospel of Luke. And part two is the continuing teaching of Jesus, the continuing activity of Jesus um, after Jesus ascended. Only this time Jesus is teaching and acting through his church that, is, that receives his Holy Spirit. So this is still Jesus. He's still calling the shots. He's still building his church. He's still teaching people about the kingdom of God. He's still healing. He's still restoring uh, people in society to one another and to God. But he's doing it now through his church. He's doing it through his church that has received the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.3 says this, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, I love how Jesus uses his 40-day periods. Um, it's counterintuitive. It's not the same way that we would use our 40... If we had a 40-day chunk just to do whatever... We would probably not do what Jesus does, but I love how he does it. Before his public ministry began, Jesus used a 40-day period to pray and, and be with his Father and just rest in that intimacy that he had with God. He didn't power up in all the ways that we would. He didn't do a 40-day um, uh, strategy session or training session. He, it was a training session of prayer and intimacy and joy. He enjoyed deep communion with God. And he stored up deep reserves that he would need to draw upon in his three years of ministry. And then after Jesus died and rose from the dead, he used his 40-day period. I love this, to encourage people that were discouraged. Um, they were following him, but they were discouraged after his death. And he used his 40 days not to go to Caesar and, and, and hey, say, hey, Caesar, give me your crown. And he didn't go to the temple authorities and say, see, I told you so. I, I, raised after, I was raised to life after three days, and the temple's going down in a few years. He didn't do all that. He, he, came to, he went to the margins where his followers were discouraged, and he brought the presence of the living God to them and said, I still want you to follow me, and I still want to teach you about the kingdom of God. And, and there's still an ongoing story for you to live, and that's what he did with them. That's how he used his 40-day period. And now Jesus is going to apprentice them in the same pattern of prayer and mission that he lived before their eyes. He is now going to say in this last 40-day period, this is how you do it now. I'm going to ascend to the Father, but I'm going to work through you. You're going to be my hands and feet. You're going to be my voice. You're going to teach and you're going to act through my spirit. And, it's, and it's, I'm going to be the head. You're going to be the body. You, you are Jesus to the Roman Empire. Are you ready? <laughs> and that's the commission that he gave to them during his 40-day period between being raised from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand. 
Acts 1-4 says this, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What is Jesus saying? He's telling them, look, don't, don't get busy. You've got this crazy mission ahead of you. So did I. I went and I prayed and I have rested in the Father's love. I want you to do that too. I want you to wait for a gift the Father's going to give you. I want you to wait until it's Christmas, until you do anything. You don't have what it takes to fulfill the calling that's in front of you. You have a dangerous calling in front of you. Some of you are going to die just like I did. You're, you're going to do things that you never thought you could do. As a, as a, you, y'all will do. You guys, as we say in Chicago, will do things that you never thought you guys could do. But I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. Don't get busy. I want you to feast together. I want you to take care of internal business together. And I want you to pray together. This is so good for us to hear as Americans living in a city because we know how to plan. And we know how to get busy. We know how to strategize. We know how to work up the adrenaline. And it feels so good when the adrenaline begins to flow. We start brainstorming and all the neurons are firing. And we're like, yes, this must be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given by the Father. We don't work our way into the Holy Spirit. It's given as a gift. And we are to rest and pray as Jesus rested and prayed. Um, for thousands of years, God's people waited for the Holy Spirit. Moses prophesied about it. Uh, Joel prophesied about it. For thousands and thousands of years, the people of God received God's word and certainly received God's provision, but God did not give them the, the spirit as he would in the book of Acts. It was thousands of years for Christmas morning to arrive. And once it did, it was received as a great gift. God moves and acts in, and blesses in his own way. Um, but before he does, Jesus is going to expose the temptations that they had and the temptations that you have to live in the kingdom of man, even as we are trying to live in the kingdom of God. Do you know that it is so possible for us to do this? You could be the most committed Christian, the most committed follower of Jesus, and have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of man and trying to make both work, try to synthesize the two. You cannot synthesize the two. They're two different kingdoms with two different lords, two different ways of operating, two different sources of power. You and I are called to live firmly in the kingdom of God. You and I are called to live firmly in the love of God. Yes, we live in Chicago. You can live in Chicago and operate in the kingdom of God 100%. And we're going to learn how that happens as we walk through the book of Acts. Let's look at the first temptation, the first way to live in the kingdom of man um, as we follow Jesus. Acts 1.6. So when they came, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Friends, see with me the first temptation that is before us and before the disciples. And that is the temptation to build an empire. It's the temptation to build an empire. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, look, th this, was a, this was a natural temptation for the disciples to have. 
They followed Jesus around everywhere, and he spoke of a kingdom to come. They were mistreated the whole time. They were put down the whole time. They were uh, marginalized the whole time. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, I'm king. I've come to restore what God started. And in their minds, they're thinking Jerusalem and the temple and political power. And they're like, let's do this now. Now that you've raised from the dead, yeah, we've, we've talked about the kingdom of God, but let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's take over the temple. Let's take over the city. Let's take over the Roman Empire. I mean, let's be your chief lieutenants and you can be our king. We, we, we bought when the stock was low. You know, now, um, now the stock is high, higher than it, we could ever imagined. Let's cash in our chips and let's build the kingdom. Let's build an empire. Um, uh, so it's political, it's local. Um, this is so tempting for us too, to think too small. And actually, instead of becoming characters in God's story, we want to become the authors of the story. We want to take control of the pen and write how the story's going to go. And we're going to write ourselves into the story as those with the power, those with the prestige, those with temporary trappings of God's favor. Um, whether we're Christian or not, we are tempted in this life to build an empire. And we define that empire in many different ways. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's our own reputation. Really, the story that we're living is, is, is our brand and our reputation. We're curating it. And we want it to be, we want to be seen well in the eyes of others. Um, or maybe it's um, making a lot of money and dominating others in the process, using others to get what we want. Um, maybe we have this idea of a utopia. If only, um, if only people would do things right, then we would see justice roll down like waters. Uh, then we would see the poor lifted up. Then we would see um, economic reordering. Maybe, maybe we have this idea that if we only would get things right, we could, we could establish a better world. And there's nothing wrong with, with wanting a better world. We should contribute towards the life and flourishing of our city and our country. Um, but we can be driven by this idea that we can do it, um, that it's possible if you only work hard enough and get it right. Um, and... Uh, we build an empire, even if it's an empire that's um, uh, for the sake of others. When we build an empire, we know that we're building an empire when our anxiety runs high, when we feel like everything rests on our shoulders, when we feel like everything rests upon people doing what we want them to do and following the plan and getting it right. Um, and we become the authors of the story rather than characters within the story. It is so freeing to be a character in God's story rather than the one writing the story. If you think about it, what would happen if a character in one of Flannery O'Connor's novels tries to become the author of the story? A lot of her characters don't come out looking so great. But meanwhile, she's telling this amazing and beautiful story about the South. And, 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 uh, and the characters follow the flow uh, of how Flannery O'Connor uh, directs them. But if they were to try to become the characters in the story, the story would be ruined. It's better for them to just live as characters in the story. We have a temptation towards wanting to be the authors of our own stories. And Jesus says, you do not have authority. The Father has authority. He's the one bringing all things together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Characters in the story have power. They're invested by the author with power. 
to live with the power that the author gives them. And we as God's people have that power. We don't have control. We don't necessarily have a say in how this is all going to turn out. But we have received power. We've received the easy yoke of Jesus. We do not have to live in anxiety. Temptation one is to build an empire. Let's skip ahead a few verses and talk about temptation two. Verse nine, and when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Friends, our second temptation is shared with the apostles. And that is the temptation to plan an escape. If our first temptation is to build an empire, our second temptation is to plan an escape. To look up nostalgically at the past and be like, whoa, that was amazing. If only I could get back to the past. Do we actually maybe sometimes live in the past? We don't accept the present reality that the Lord has given us. We, we look to the past, to the glory days of how things used to be. Or maybe we're, we're, we're looking into the, to the future and we're going, if only it could be like I want it to be. Maybe someday it will. My life will start when I'm finally taking off in my career when I'm finally in the relationship that I pine for, when I'm finally in a house with a larger yard, when I'm finally, uh, whatever, fill in the blank. When does life begin for you? When does real life begin for you? When, does God's, when is God's power made available to you? God always meets us in the present. That's where eternity meets us. It meets us in the present. But we are tempted to disengage from the present. Sometimes it's because of our pain. I, I read a great um, uh, uh, posting by Sheryl Sandberg. Some of you may have read this. She recently lost her husband. And um, she talks about the temptation after you've lost someone that you care about and you're grieving so much um, to actually not be alive even when you're living. To, to become a, a human zombie where you're disconnected from the present because it's too painful to face it. And so with prescription drugs or with any, any other kind of thing that can bring you a bodily pleasure, you actually disengage from the present and you, and you don't live even as you're living. And this is a temptation for us to self-medicate. Not just in our fantasies of how things were or how things could be, um, but uh, through tools like alcohol, drugs, entertainment, we can use to disengage sex, pornography, to disengage from the present. This is the way that we escape. It's also possible to do this in a spiritual way. It's possible to use prayer and piety like a jetpack. Like I can disengage from the world. I can use prayer and Bible study to actually not face the pain of my family, to face the pain of my own soul, to face the pain of my neighborhood. We can disengage. It's a temptation for humans to do that, whether we're following Jesus or not. So the temptation to build an empire, there's a temptation to plan and escape. And these are stories that we could play out in our own individual lives. But there is a call upon us, collectively, there's a call upon the used guys of Emmanuel Anglican Church, and that call 
is to receive the Holy Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit. Read with me Acts 1.8. But you, and this is plural, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Disciples, it's not for you to control the story, build an empire, or disengage nostalgically, but it is for you to receive power through the Holy Spirit. Open your arms, disciples, and become apostles now, and receive the Holy Spirit. Open your arms and spirits and hearts. Let go of your anxiety. Actually, uh, give it to the Father, and let Him give you the greatest gift after your salvation, and that is the Holy Spirit which will bring the kingdom of God to you, which will bring the kingdom of God, which will send you out with compassion and power to a hurting world that needs the Holy Spirit too. When we engage with the Holy Spirit, we're not being selfish. We're being children. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we're daughters of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we're sons of God. And the Holy Spirit gives us power to tell a story Not control the story, but to tell the story. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses when you receive the Holy Spirit. And as Kevin Harney said in his book, Organic Outreach for Ordinary Individuals, which I highly recommend, um, he says that we don't just have a story about God for following Jesus. We have stories. We've got a number of different ways that, that Jesus has changed our life in normal, ordinary, spiritual ways. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive power to be with people to be with our neighbors, to love them, not manipulate them to build a kingdom, but to simply be with them and simply tell our stories to them and hear their stories and see the power of Jesus work through us, spread beyond us, not because we're building an empire, uh, but because we're living in God's kingdom, receiving the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is so simple. It makes us children again. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we are not calling him down. It's a gift that's already been given to God's people. If you have been following Jesus and you've confessed with your mouth that he is Lord and and you've trusted his gift of salvation upon the cross and his resurrection, um, you have the Holy Spirit. So receiving it then is an act of actively engaging with the gift that you already have. You are opening yourself up, your practices, your life, your thoughts, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is available to you. And if you are not following Jesus, if you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit is something that isn't yours now, but it is offered to you. It is offered to you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can simply receive it. You don't have to conjure Him. You don't have to call Him down. We are free to be who we are in Christ when we receive the Holy Spirit. And I can't even predict what the Holy Spirit will do. I can't. I can't predict what the Holy Spirit will do when you say, come Holy Spirit, I want to receive you in a way that I haven't up till now. I want to receive you in this present moment. I want to receive you in the life that I have. I want to receive you with the weakness that I have. Here are some ways to receive the Holy Spirit. If you're a skeptic, here's a way that you can receive the Holy Spirit. You can say, Holy Spirit, teach me about Jesus and help me to begin following him or help me to begin following him again. Teach me about Jesus. Oh, the Holy Spirit knows about Jesus. He knows, he's intimate with Jesus. 
and he loves you, and he wants you to teach you about his son Jesus. You can simply pray, teach me about Jesus. Teach me to love him how you love him. See him how you see him. Glorify Jesus in my heart, imagination, and life. If you're right now, if you're learning about Jesus, one of the ways to receive the Holy Spirit is the prayer, Holy Spirit, help me to begin to practice what I'm learning. Do you notice that the, I mentioned before that the disciples became apostles in Acts 1, meaning they went from simply learning from Jesus to being sent on his behalf. Some of us need to make that transition as well. We need to go from simply learning about Jesus to being sent on his behalf. So this, the prayer there is, help me begin to practice what I'm learning. Help me begin to, to obey the commands that you are giving me. Maybe you're already obeying. Maybe you're in a point where you're like, yeah, I, I know that I'm being sent. Maybe a prayer for you is, Holy Spirit, help me begin to draw upon more of your power, especially when I feel weak and unqualified. Help me begin to draw upon more of your power, Holy Spirit, especially in the moments when I feel my fleshiness, when I feel weak. For the weary, maybe you're tired right now. The, the prayer for you may be simply this, Holy Spirit, help me rest and draw upon the Father's love. Let the Holy Spirit take you to the same place where he took Jesus, which was to a solitary place where Jesus received from the Father. Or maybe the prayer is simply, um, heal me, <laughs> or come Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will make us distinct as God's people. He will give us the qualities of God. He will impart to us what we could, what we could not do for ourselves. And the simple discipline of receiving the Holy Spirit um, is where we put ourselves in a position for the Lord to give us freedom to do what we're not free to do yet. The Lord will give us freedom to be his witnesses if we feel locked up right now. The Holy Spirit will uh, give us the power to pursue personal holiness um, in, in, in our embodied life and in our sexuality that we don't have right now. The Holy Spirit can give us that. The Holy Spirit can give us the power to be with our neighbors rather than manipulate our neighbors and cajole them. The Holy Spirit can give us power to receive the Father's love as his daughters or sons. The Holy Spirit makes us distinct by filling us with all the qualities and the fruit that the Spirit bears. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, what if we became a church that was marked by all of those fruits? The power of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in gentleness. The power of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in love. This is our birthright. This is the gift of God to the people of God. The Holy Spirit. It's for normal people who don't feel spiritual. It's for tired people who don't feel God's energy. It's for all social classes and races. It is given to us by Jesus. <coughs> It is given to us by the Father. We can receive it as the Father's sons and daughters, as apprentices of Jesus. Let me pray for our congregation, and I encourage you to pray with me. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.